Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. I'm going to invite Bill Holt to come up. He's going to read to you from Mark 13. If you want to follow along, Mark chapter 13. All right, good morning. Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another and shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? And Jesus, answering them, began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These things are the beginnings of sorrows. But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand, for premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and a child will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death, and you will be hated for my name's sake but he who endures till the end will be saved. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babes in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter. For in those days there will be tribulation. Such has not been since the beginning of the creation of God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord has shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, he is there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed, see, I have told you all things beforehand. Our five-year-old daughter this week, Declan, hopped in the car with my wife as she picked her up from school, and she said, Mom, <clears throat> will you turn on that song about true love? 
so I can just think about Charlie while we drive home. I don't know who Charlie is. I know. There's a bit of a warning sign for us that trouble's are coming. You know, it's not the title of my sermon today, but really it is the theme of Jesus' dialogue. You just probably picked up on that as we read through it. The, the title really of what he's talking about in all of Mark chapter 13 is that trouble is coming. And that's what he's concerned about, his hearers know, knowing about as they uh, sit with him and hear Jesus teach. And I'll just tell you, uh, for me, as we've walked through Mark's gospel, I've loved walking through Mark's gospel. I've in some ways dreaded reaching Mark 13. I've been very nervous to arrive here. I, in fact, I have a friend, he's a teaching pastor at a church, and he taught through Mark's gospel a couple of years ago. And I remember uh, when he was talking to him about his journey through it, I, I hopped online and noticed that he finished Mark chapter 12 one week, and then the following week he said, if you'd open your Bible to Mark chapter 14, verse 1, <laughs> and skipped over it completely. And the reason that for so many of us, myself included, that we find this chapter intimidating is because it's controversial and hotly debated. Really, the reason it's so debated, though, is because it's prophetic in nature. And because of its prophetic nature, it's open to interpretation. You see, Mark 13 is something that theologians refer to as the Olivet Discourse. It's a teaching that Jesus gives while seated atop the Mount of Olives, adjacent to and really above the Temple Mount, looking back that direction. And it's a teaching that Jesus gives in response to his disciples' questions. He's answering their questions that they're asking him, and it's recorded in Mark's gospel. It's also recorded in Matthew 24 in greater detail and in Luke chapter 21. Mark is the most concise version of this message. You see, it starts with Jesus being asked by the guys, you just noticed it in verse 1, where they're asking him, hey, would you admire the temple with us? I mean, look this direction. Isn't this amazing? They're asking him. And Jesus responds and says, it's going to fall down. It's coming down. It's going to be destroyed brick by brick. It's going to be taken apart. He's very specific about even how it will be destroyed. But then the guys are so very troubled that when they reach going away from the temple, down the brook Kidron, back up the Mount of Olives, once they're atop it, able to look back the direction of the city of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount seated on top of that hill, as they look back that direction, they're concerned and they get alone with Jesus and they ask him, so when is that destruction coming? But then according to Matthew 24, they also ask, and when will your coming and the end of the age be? They're really asking about two separate things. Jesus has told them that the destruction of the temple is looming, and they're asking, so when's that happening? But they're also asking, and Jesus, when will the end of the age be? You see, we live in a present age that's broken, and the whole storyline of the Bible is that God is promising to redeem and restore our broken age and broken creation, broken society, broken me, that he's going to redeem and restore and take us, in a sense, back to Eden, that's where we're headed. That's really what heaven looks like. Heaven looks like Eden, where, where God and man are united again, where creation exists and is whole again, where the sacred space of God and, and, and this, the, the, the normal space of us intertwine and, and overlay perfectly. That's where we're headed, is back to Eden. We don't go to heaven when we die. The end of the story tells us that heaven comes here and things are made right. You know, there's an old saying that there's a hundred ways to skin a cat. And I don't know if that's true. And I don't really want to find out. And also, I don't even like cats. 
However, when it comes to Mark 13, I get what, what someone might say if they were to say those words, because there's a lot of ways for us to approach this. And for me, I'll just admit to you, yesterday I was 50 pages deep of notes going, I don't know where to begin. And so I, I, I will share with you what I think is most helpful as we roll into this, because we're going to take two weeks to talk through Mark 13. And there's three things as we roll into it today that I think are foundational pieces that will help us to understand this. But then I'm going to end with three points of application. But I'm telling you that now because I need you to hang with me. Three observations, three foundational pieces first, and then we wrap up with three pieces of application from what we're being taught here. So here's the first foundational piece that I think helps us. And if you're a note taker, it's worth writing down. And that's that I think Jesus' intention in this section of Scripture is to pull apart part of what people had falsely assumed should be pressed together. Jesus is here going to try to pull apart something that his audience has unfortunately pressed together. And here's what I mean by that. One of the main challenges that Jesus faced in his life and ministry was people's disappointment, and their disappointment was connected to misguided expectations. We too need to be careful of this. But if you don't believe me, just slow down and remember how Jesus' story climaxed in an arrest, and that that arrest takes place because it was arranged by one of his 12 disciples who church historians refer to as Judas. Uh, they, they refer to him as the zealot. He's someone who would have fought against uh, the Romans who were there in place, and he was so driven and compelled to want to uh, get the Romans off of their backs that he was so filled with disappointment when Jesus made it clear that he would not fight their oppressors with a sword, that Jesus would be sold out by this man Judas because of his unmet expectations that were unjustified, unwarranted, and because of his frustration that came out of that, he sold Jesus out. It's the arrest then that's made by the religious leaders and the priests whose misguided expectations left them wanting and expecting a Messiah who would reign over the whole earth rather than one who had come to suffer and die for it. And if we're fair, it wasn't their ignorance of the scripture that led them to those conclusions, that that's what they anticipated and wanted. In fact, prophecies were very clear. The prophets foretold a coming king who would arrive to end all other nations and dominating forces. He would, as the image that Daniel would see, he would come and crush every other regime that existed. And when he did, he would grow into a massive global reign over all the earth, bringing peace. They saw, the prophets did, a king who would come as the lion of the tribe of Judah. But the prophets also foretold of a suffering servant who would come and be bruised and pierced and crushed, not for himself, the prophets would say, but as a substitutionary sacrifice, as a lamb. They saw both a king who had come as a lion and a suffering servant who had come as a lamb. And that's a difficult thing to try to wrap together and understand, well, how is Messiah going to do these things? So if I'm going to pick one of the two or emphasize one over the other, and I'm oppressed, I'm picking the lion and the king. And that's what they had leaned into as well. If you're trying to reconcile those two things, the only way it makes sense is with our hindsight, which is 2020, where we look now and recognize that the Messiah had two arrivals that were planned. The first, where he would come as a suffering servant, as a lamb. The second being that he would come back as a conquering king, as a lion. And Jesus, I think, in this moment is helping them to try to separate these two things because they're thinking, if you're talking destruction of the temple, you must mean, therefore, that this is the end of it all and this is where you set up your kingdom. This is where you begin your reign. 
And this is why Jesus will give them clues and say, and this is not the end. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, and this is not the end. It's not yet, guys. He's trying to slow them down, but they're going to face the weight of their disappointment. He's going to address two different things in what he teaches in Mark 13. One is the soon arrival of the destruction of the temple, and then one is a distant far echo of fulfillment that's going to be the end of the age, something that we're still waiting for. So Jesus' intention, I think, in this section of teaching, the first thing for you to recognize is that I think he's trying to pull apart what other people have unfortunately pressed together as one idea. Here's the second thing as far as the foundational thing as we approach this text, and that's that prophecy is typically a soon-coming and also has a far-reaching implication. That's the second thing I think that we need to be reminded of, that prophecy typically has a soon-coming and far-reaching implication. This is what one of the reasons that prophecy is so tricky for us to process and to interpret and for us to have any clue what's actually going on. It's because of this truth that prophecy often has a near and a far-reaching fulfillment. It often speaks of present or soon-arriving events and then a distant far echo that will be fulfilled long in the future. Let me give you a couple of examples of this so you don't think I'm just making this up. Think about Psalm chapter 22 where Abraham takes Isaac up onto the mountain. For three days he's journeying there where his son is in the mind of Abraham is as good as dead. But at the end of that, he, he all of a sudden has God intervene and provide himself a sacrifice atop Mount Moriah. It would be the later place that the temple would be built where Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, would go and sacrifice himself, be provided as the substitute, where he would give his life. And for three days, as if existing in a tomb like the mind of Abraham, he would exist in a tomb and then rise again. There's a fulfillment in the future, a picture, an image. But one of the things that God says in that moment is that you will have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. A part of the fulfillment of that is the nation of Israel would come from his son. Another part of the distant fulfillment of that, though, was that he would bring many sons to glory through a distant relative named Jesus who would go atop the mount as well on Moriah to give himself as a sacrifice. Are you tracking with me? The near fulfillment is that his son in front of him, who all of a sudden was dead and now is alive, who he is going to sacrifice but now doesn't need to, that, uh, that he would fulfill his promise through him, but there would be an even distant son who he'd fulfill the promise through in a greater way. It's Psalm 22 where David's crying out because of the agony he's in as he suffers, and it's speaking of what he's presently feeling, and yet there's a distant echo that fulfills, and the one whose arms would be outstretched on a cross, who would be pierced, and whose bones would come out of joint as he'd hang on a cross. It's Isaiah 53, as Isaiah would write about his own agony he's feeling in that moment and speaking to the people about what God was actively doing in the present day, and it would have a distant echo into the life of Jesus and his final moments of suffering on a cross. It's Ezekiel 37 that spoke by the prophet prophetically to the nation of Israel presently that there was a near-arriving deliverance that we'd be delivered from Babylonian rule. But there's a distant echo of Ezekiel 37 and 38 that you might be aware of that speaks of a future regathering of the nation of Israel, the Valley of Dry Bones, where God will bring them together and breathe life into them that we saw happen in 1948. It's not just a near-arriving fulfillment of prophecy, but often prophecy echoes throughout the ages, leaving us longing for a total and complete fulfillment of those things. It has a near 
arriving and far-reaching fulfillment. And this chapter of Jesus' teaching here at the Olivet Discourse, it's spoken of by Jesus around 30 AD. It's recorded by Mark in the 60s ADs and written out and, and begins to be distributed, church history tells us. But it's addressing things that will happen, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, and yet it has distant echoes that reach beyond our present day that it describe a future day that we're yet to see that we're still waiting for. It's part of what makes this all so very confusing, and it's part of why we're going to split this into two talks, in that we will talk today about the near-arriving fulfillment of what Jesus said, which is the destruction of the temple, and then next week we will talk about the future echo and fulfillment of what we're still waiting to see happen. And so today we're going to talk about the near fulfillment, the destruction of the temple. So, Jesus and the temple. And if we're considering Jesus in the temple, there's a third thing I think foundationally you need to know. It's not just that Jesus, I think, in this passage is pulling apart what people have pressed together about a first and a second coming. It's not just that prophecy also typically has a near arriving and far reaching implication and fulfillment. It's also, here's the third thing, that you have to be aware of the significance of the Jewish temple. Because as a 21st audience reading, in a sense, somebody else's mail, when we hear about the destruction of the temple, we're not really phased much. We realize it's a big deal, but it's the end of an era. It's the burning of a building. What's the big deal? Well, for the Jews, this was massive. And they begin by admiring the temple. That's verse 1, where they look Jesus' way and tell him, like, hey, check this out. Isn't this impressive? And it was impressive. It would even turn modern heads. In the 7th century, there's a guy who took the time to ride out uh, the seven wonders of the ancient world to talk about of all the things that humanity throughout the ages has created. There's, there's a, a handful of them just over that seven of them that we can't explain that we marvel at back in the seventh century. On that list of the ancient wonders of the ancient world was the Jewish temple. This made the list. This was a massive building that was so very impressive. So buckle up because part nerd rant, part history. Here we go. If we fast forward all the way to the beginning of the Bible, what the Bible begins with is a creation story, and the pinnacle of creation is that God creates those that he makes in his own image. That's the pinnacle, but the climax of the story is what happens after he creates them, and that it tells you in your Bible that God walks with man as, God, as a man walks with his friend in the cool of the day. The, the pinnacle of the garden story is that God and man are united together. Then comes the terrible plot twist. And the beautiful story of God's union with man, with all of creation. And that plot twist happens when a rebellion that failed in heaven is brought here to earth. And Satan, who cannot destroy or hurt God directly, instead becomes settled on the, the idea that he'll just hurt those that God loves and made in his image. And mankind will join the rebellion that had failed in heaven and was brought to earth, the rebellion against God, destroying not just the beautiful harmony within the garden and creation itself, but what they do, what we've done is we've destroyed the beauty and harmony between man and God. We've broken the relationship. And then comes the haunting question that echoes from the garden still today, where all of a sudden all we hear in that broken, splintered relationship is a question, where are you, Adam? Things aren't the same anymore. The union between God and man, it's been changed. Sin and shame now mark mankind now, now necessitating that separation and sacrifice become a part of their relationship. That man is now, because of their sin and shame, separated from God, and sacrifice is now 
a part of the only way that they could re-enter any form of a relationship with him. Adam and Eve are so overcome with shame because of their sin that they hide from God and try to cover up what's been exposed about them. And they pull back and separate themselves from God. But you remember the story, God steps forward and provides a sacrifice to cover their sin and shame in the garden. It's the first sacrifice. But this would start a pattern of separation and then sacrifice, where blood would be shed to provide a covering for humanity. And at that moment in time, God would promise from the garden that there would one day be a sacrifice offered as a covering for man's sin and shame that would end the separation between God and man once and for all. And humanity waited for the arrival of that promise. The focus of the narrative, though, in our story of the Bible, all of a sudden shifts and hones in on Abraham, who leaves his hometown, headed for a land that God has promised to him. And when he arrives, he builds four altars as if they're tent stakes in the ground that mark out the territory that God has promised to him. He builds those altars, which tells you that there would be more sacrifice, there'd be more offerings, there'd be more substitutes, there'd be more bloodshed in this relationship with God. And the Bible tells us that Abraham's grandson Jacob then, he, he comes into the land and he digs wells throughout the land and he builds altars is what it tells us about Jacob. He digs wells because it's communicating something to you that he's determined to stay and establish life in the land that God has promised, but he's building altars and it communicates to us a determination to reestablish a connection with a God that they've become separated from. But then you know the storyline of the Bible. All of a sudden, a severe famine comes in Israel, and all of a sudden, this family is driven into Egypt to survive the famine. And when they enter, they're finding themselves in a position of prominence. By the time they leave, although they've experienced a population explosion, they're finding themselves enslaved. And so God calls a unique named Moses who will lead them out of their captivity. Remember what our story is all about, though. Our story is following the splintered union between God and man of what was lost in the garden, a relationship that's now marked by sin and shame, where separation and sacrifice, new reality for the people of God to try to be united with God again. And the final act that brings about their deliverance out of Egypt was the blood of a sacrifice shed and applied on the doorposts of their homes so that the judgment of God would pass over the inhabitants of that home. The blood on their doorpost, it provided more than just an exit point for them to leave Egypt. Passing through those blood-stained doors brought them back into a unique union with their God. Because once they're in the wilderness, God meets with his people in a powerful way, and he leaves them, you remember, with ten commandments after a rocky start and a golden calf. And then the, prophet, or the people respond and promise to uphold the law and to maintain a relationship with their God a new covenant is established. And God quickly introduces, track with me, don't let me lose you, he quickly introduces two new elements in his connection and relationship with his people. Things that the people of God would utilize so that they could once again dwell with and among, that he could once again dwell with and among his people. And that's the ark that would hold that covenant. And then that was the tabernacle that sat at the center of the nation's gathering in the wilderness that would house God himself. The lid of that ark was called the mercy seat. It was placed over the law of God that the ark would house. It was the mercy of God protecting us from the law. 
And God provided a merciful way for the blood of a substitute, an innocent sacrifice to be sprinkled on the lid of the ark once a year on the day of atonement so that God's people were protected from the judgment and justice of God that they deserved for breaking the terms of that covenant. This is what it looked like. This is what sin and shame had driven things to, separation and now sacrifice constantly. The ark and the tabernacle begin to shift that for the people where now God is back amongst their people. He's back present with his people. But if the ark, track with me, and the tabernacle are such important parts of the development of God's story amongst creation, then where are they now? Remember the tabernacle, it's constructed in Exodus under Moses' watchful eye, and then it gets an upgrade thanks to the preparation of a future king named David and then his son Solomon. Remember David said, hey, I want to build you a permanent dwelling place, and God told him no because David's, David's reign was marked by war and conquest, and God did not want in the minds of the nations around Israel for a connection to be made that the worship of God and bloodshed of other people the worship of God and conquest, the worship of God and warfare were connected. God didn't want that. And so instead, David's son Solomon would build the temple, this massive, impressive building that some would chart out the dimensions that are listed in your Bible and say it would have risen over 20 stories high. This was a wonder of the ancient world. But in 586 BC, you might remember the Babylonians come and they level it. And all of a sudden, the people are broken because... Their whole identity is lost. But it would be rebuilt in 515 BC. Ezra would be commissioned to go back. And then Ezra, what he would simply build that would leave the older generation who had seen the prior glories of the temple, leave them weeping. Because it's such just a pale comparison of what it once was. It wasn't ornate or beautiful and or impressive at all. But then comes Herod, who for political reasons, decides that he will beautify and expand the temple. And the temple's expansion would leave it twice the size of Solomon's temple. And the construction of the temple Mount Plateau meant that massive retaining walls were built along a ridge line of a mountain to then fill it with dirt to level it out so that only two little spaces, even to this day, two little spaces of the actual bedrock or of the actual mountain range even poke through the plateau that Herod would build that creates this massive area that we called the Temple Mount. It was the largest building site in the ancient world. Herod didn't just spruce up the temple. He built this massive retaining wall around it, leveling and elongating the Temple Mount, leaving it for 35 acres. It expanded there across that mountaintop. And the disciples looked around and said to Jesus, like, come on, this is really impressive, isn't it? In fact, what they're impressed by, they say, is look at the manner of the stones. If you've ever been to Israel before and you even just see the the remnants of the retaining wall that are there, some of those stones, modern architects still don't know how they moved them or got them there. They're massive. Like, go home and Google it. Don't do it now. This is hard enough to keep up. Massive stones and beautifully ornate. Herod's stones are, are, are always able to be picked out as you go throughout the Bible lands. You know what's from the era of Herod because he had his masons trim out a border around those stones and he refused to allow mortar go in, to go in between those stones. They had to fit perfectly. And so as the guys are looking, they're like, look at the massive stones. Look at the beauty of it all. Isn't it impressive? And Jesus doesn't seem to be that impressed. That's all the history. That's all the background. 
that's trying to paint a picture for you. Here's our application pieces. Our first takeaway, I really think, is that this story tells me and is meant to tell you as 21st century readers that you really can trust your Bible. Because what Jesus prophesies here is pretty amazing. Remember Mark's gospel, the earliest to be written and circulated of all of the gospels, Jesus spoke these words in the 30s. They were recorded by Mark as he spent time with Peter, Peter who is one of Jesus' disciples, who would go from place to place preaching messages, teaching these stories of what Jesus had said and what Jesus had taught. And Mark begins to dictate them, collect those writings, and produce the first account, a biography of Jesus. In the 60s, church history tells us that went out, the destruction of the temple that Jesus describes would not happen until after that, which tell me that this is just another example of the Bible's amazing prophetic nature, something I think that sets the Bible apart from any other religious writing in that it claims to be inspired and proves itself to be that. Now, I know what you're thinking. For some of you, you're like, I don't know that I'm sold on this. In fact, I don't even know that there's proof that it was written in the 60s. Well, this is just one of so very many prophecies in your Bible. In fact, 27% of your Bible is prophetic in nature. That's what scholars tell us. More than one out of every four verses in your Bible are telling about events either that have already come to pass or things that we're still waiting on for them to come to pass. In fact, there's over 100 specific fulfilled prophecies about the life and arrival of Jesus. One Oxford University professor, he did the math, he looked through it, and in the Old Testament, he says there's 322 distinct prophecies about Jesus. Things about his ancestry, prophecies even about his life, prophecies even about his death, and most certainly about his resurrection. Those are all found throughout the Bible, but critics of of the Bible who push back on me and say, why would you waste your time teaching people a book that can't be trusted? It's just fairy tales. They would say, because all of those prophecies were placed in the Old Testament after these events took place, or even in a moment like this. This prophecy was clearly placed there after AD 70, because there's no way that Jesus knew that they'd take the temple apart brick by brick. Well, so much of that changed when you think about it. All these Old Testament prophecies that people say were inserted after the fact, all of that changed in 1948 when a little shepherd boy in an area called Qumran out by the Dead Sea, when he went searching for a lost goat and threw a rock into a cave and heard skip, skip, pop, and it was the sound of pottery breaking open, and what he found inside is the greatest archaeological find in modern history. It's called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Remember, every ancient Old Testament book was, had a handwritten copy with the exception of the book of Esther many of them having multiple copies, including the prophet Isaiah, all 66 chapters of him in one massive scroll that are dated back to before the time of Christ. Please hear me. Dated back to before the time of Christ, proving that those prophecies existed before he arrived and that he then in his arrival fulfilled all of those things. You see, for me, so much of the time, I have people ask me, well, how do we even know that the Bible hasn't changed and that it can be trusted? I tell them the Dead Sea Scrolls are how I know that. The Dead Sea Scrolls tell me that what I have hasn't changed because it can be compared line by line against these ancient texts and shown that it hasn't changed, even going back to predating Jesus. And it also shows me that what I have, not only that it hasn't changed, but that what I have is true, that what I have is trustworthy because of the prophetic nature of the text. How else am I to explain all of these amazing 332 prophecies about the life of Jesus that are fulfilled in his life? How am I to explain those unless I have a God outside of time and space who's clearly speaking to the prophets of old who are writing these things out? God is behind this book. It's what sets this book aside completely. 
And some would say, well, come on, Trevor, what if Jesus just accidentally, what if even he maliciously, purposefully set out to fulfill all of those prophecies? Well, first, how do you do that? How do you decide when you're born, the era you're born in, to the family you're born into, the region of the world that you're born into, the very town that you would be born in? How do you decide those sorts of things? Not just a how, but a why. Why in the world, if you're reading the prophets of old about someone being despised and rejected, having his beard torn out and his back whipped and dying naked and alone, why in the world does anyone lie to sign up for that? We lie sometimes for personal benefit, right? That's why we lie. None of us lie in order to pay more on our taxes. No one lies in order to go to jail. No one lies to be prosecuted for some crime they never committed unless there's a payoff involved, right? There's no payoff for Jesus if he's dying naked and alone as a false prophet. In fact, there's a mathematician by the name of Dr. Peter Stoner. He's a mathematician and astronomer, and he did the math of, of someone, just the mathematic probability of Jesus fulfilling just eight of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, just eight. Remember, we're talking about well over 100, over 300 specific prophecies in the life of Jesus. If the mathematic probability of someone accidentally fulfilling just eight of them is the same mathematic probability of 1 in 10 to the 17th power. It's a 1 with 17 zeros behind it. He says it's the same mathematic probability of someone paving the entire state of Texas in one-inch square tiles and writing on the back of one of those tiles a little X, flipping it upside down so no one knows where it is, and El Paso or Dallas or Houston or the rest of Texas that no one knows exists. If they just placed that tile somewhere and you walked into Texas, you wandered around as much as you want, and then you just picked one, I say eeny, meeny, miny, mo, this one, flip it over. If you guessed it correctly on the first one, it's one in 10 to the 17th power, the same mathematic probability of Jesus just accidentally fulfilling just eight of those prophecies. I realize that's a mouthful, but do you see how impressive it is, the prophetic nature of the text? This reminds me, this amazing prophecy Jesus gives here, and I'll explain it to you in a moment. It reminds me just that your Bible can be trusted. You need to know that prediction that Jesus makes here is unfathomable for the Jews. This is unthinkable for them, that the temple will be destroyed. It was not just losing their place of worship for a nation. This was the dwelling place of their God on earth. This is the centerpiece of their national identity. This is the central banking system of their whole economy, something Jesus took issue with in the previous chapter. For him to predict this, he's predicting a full collapse. They'd understand that. A full collapse of life as they know it. It wasn't only the place where they would go to meet with God. It was the only place where God's people could find a way back to God through the sacrificial system. To lose the temple was unthinkable because it was losing their very identity as God's unique people. It's unfathomable. But you need to also know for the Romans, that's for the Jews, for the Romans, it was uncharacteristic. Historians talk to us about the Romans going out on conquest many times and them even, even taking over cities and communities and villages and what they would do with the temples of other nations. Historians are very, very clear. They would not destroy them. They would add them instead to their long lineup of their gods. They'd line them up or they'd add them to the pantheon. And then they would place one of their own gods also inside of that temple next to adjacent to the God of the people that they just conquered. Are you tracking with me? The Romans don't want to stir up problems with the gods of other people. Also, when they would suppress people, they don't want to stir up more problems with them. And so they would just take over. They'd add that God to the long list of gods that they'd worship, and then they'd place one of their own guys inside. 
For them to go in and Jesus to say they're going to destroy this place, this is uncharacteristic for them. And yet Jesus is incredibly specific. Verse 2, he says they're going to take it apart stone by stone. And just as Jesus had prophesied, the temple would be completely destroyed in 70 AD by General Titus Vespasian, who would later become the emperor of Rome, and not a stone would be left atop another. There's a four-year rebellion. If you don't know the story, then track with me. A four-year rebellion breaks out in AD 66 by the Jews against the Romans for a number of different reasons, including sacrifices that are being made there on the Temple Mount to their God. It culminated in a four-month siege of the city of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. Josephus, who's an ancient historian that is so good in the first century about writing about these things taking place, he was actually a Jewish military leader who became a defector to the Romans, who when the Romans went out in this era on conquest, fighting back against the Jewish rebellion, he and others with him decided we'll just kill ourselves rather than fight. And he chickened out at the end of the line rather than killing himself. And he waited till the Romans came and said, hey, listen, I'm a scholar. I can write. I'll go with you on conquest. Let the world never forget the conquests of Rome. He stroked their ego. This guy specifically, Titus Vespasian, he looked at him. He was initially put in prison uh, there uh, with the Romans. And he told Titus Vespasian, you one day will be emperor. And he's like, yeah, that's never going to happen but I kind of like hearing that. You want to hang out and come with me on conquest? And he ends up being right, which is a little bit wild. But he goes out on conquest with him. This guy, this ancient historian, Josephus, was a part of the peace treaty that was sent towards the city of Jerusalem during their time where they hunkered down and fought against the Romans. And he tells us that they shot the peace talk negotiator with an arrow and killed him. If you've ever seen it in the movie, like it never plays out well when you shoot the negotiator, and it didn't. There's a massive collapse of the portion of the wall around the city because of a large earthquake. That large earthquake opened up an area where they could enter the city and then enter into the tunnels that eventually would even take them up onto the Temple Mount. The Jews ran back into the temple complex to make their last stand and were slaughtered by the Romans. In this standoff that had lasted four years, it came to a head where details get a little fuzzy because no one wants to say that anything was done intentionally, where Josephus is like, well, on accident, someone threw a torch into the temple, set it ablaze, it caught on fire, and was destroyed. The thing about the temple was, as we've learned, it was crazy ornate, covered with gold. Gold, gold, uh, gold instruments inside the temple, gold ornate. Remember, massive clusters of grapes that were there along the gates, gold interlaying inside the ceiling. It was beautiful, but as it set on fire, all that gold liquefied and slid between every narrow little nook and cranny crevice, crack between those bricks, those massive stones, which explains why they took it apart brick by brick, scraping the gold off the top after being on conquest for years, without a paycheck or anything to show for it, at least they'd go home with some gold in their pockets. So brick by brick, they took it apart. The only stones from the temple you can still find in the land of Israel are thrown off of the southwestern corner of the temple plateau and that crushed and embedded themselves inside uh, the Roman road that was there about 60 feet below it. Those stones are still there they're not even remarkable. You walk down there to look at how big the wall is and people typically sit in them to try or hide underneath them to get some shade and then someone will say, did you know what those are? We think those are probably the only stones that we even know where they ended up from the temple that just were pushed off the edge and now create this massive pile here 
that no one even seems to care about. It was just as Jesus had said. In fact, Josephus said it this way, speaking of Jerusalem's destruction, he said it was so thoroughly laid even with the ground by those that dug it up to the foundation that there was nothing left to make those that came thither believe it had ever even been inhabited. Our first takeaway is that you can trust your Bible because Jesus shockingly, specifically prophesied something that came to pass in amazing detail and that proves that your Bible's trustworthy and true. But there's a second application here, and I'm going to ask for your grace in in giving you this one, because I think it really is here, and I'm not picking a fight. But that's that you and I are not to die on the wrong hill. Think about this, that you and I are not to die on the wrong hills. In fact, in Luke's gospel, there's more detail given of the Olivet Discourse, and it records some of Jesus' very specific directives for his disciples. Here's what Luke's gospel says. He says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, that would have happened in AD 66, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart. Let those who are in the country not enter her. For these are the days of vengeance that all things will be written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant or those who have nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people, and they will fail or fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trampled by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Mark adds a detail. He said, and pray that you don't have to flee during winter because the banks of the Jordan would have swollen, gotten much wider and harder to pass. When you see the armies encircling around the city... Jesus instructed his friends to leave. Don't defend it, the city, the temple. Don't protect it. Jesus says, let it go. I mean, think about this. If you take Judas out of the equation, all but one of the remaining disciples, apostles of Jesus, would die martyrs' deaths. The one exception is John. John would be boiled in oil actually by the son of Titus Vespasian. But he wouldn't cook, he'd continue to preach, so he'd pull him out of the oil. He'd then poison him, but he didn't die, so he'd banish him afar off. I bring that up because they all had a hill to die on, but the hill they died on was their testimony that Jesus was alive. The hill that he told them not to die on was the one that they held so dear that this is our whole identity, our national identity. Our economy is tied to this. My goodness, all that's true and real historically about it, all of it is wrapped up in this. And Jesus, you're telling us to leave. Jesus, you're encouraging us to go. If we leave this, then we're stepping into what we don't know, and Jesus is telling them, don't die on that hill. Upwards of 1.1 million Jewish people, historians told us, were killed during that four-year Roman onslaught, but many Christians' lives were spared because they recognized the signs that Jesus had warned them of, and they responded accordingly. They fled. In fact, an early church father named Eusebius, who pastored the church in Caesarea, he documents that, uh, talking about something called the flight uh, to Pella, which is east of Jerusalem, where all of these Christians heeded the words of Jesus as someone remembered, hang on, Jesus told us when we saw them encircling, it was eighty sixty-eight. we got to get out of here. And so they all hightailed it out of there and left, and their lives were spared because they remembered Jesus' words. 
And so Jesus, picture him sitting there with the disciples and he's telling them, this is what's going to happen. Well, tell us, Jesus, when is it all going to go down? And he begins to tell them there's going to be false messiahs, which you need to know that there was a false messiah that came shortly after Jesus named Theodius, who gathered his people towards the banks of the river Jordan and told them he was going to open the banks for them to cross along. But the banks were were raging during that time and the Romans came behind them and slaughtered all of his followers. Jesus had warned them, don't follow these kinds of characters. Another sign would be war. Now think of this. It's Pax Romana in this era. It's Roman peace. But he's saying a time is going to come where that's going to be shaken. You're going to hear of rumors of wars. They didn't have Twitter to look at live stream feeds of things. Not that we're getting accurate information from Twitter. I should have picked a better way of explaining that. But but they didn't have those options. It was just rumor mill that would be passed down for a long time. Like, oh, no, there's threats. There's problems. There's building tension. And then he said, and then there'd be earthquakes. And there were massive earthquakes in the first century. In 61, in Phrygia, it was crippled by quakes. In 62, a massive quake in Pompeii is something historians talk about. The future massive one in Pompeii didn't take place till 79. But these big earthquakes, including a massive earthquake that broke the wall, that allowed a breach so that the Romans could enter in and slaughter the Jews who had stood there for their last stand. And Jesus prepared them. He says, in those days, you need to know, you're going to be turned over by your own family. What we read in his description sounds like the book of Acts, doesn't it? Families turning against each other, being dragged before rulers and leaders, being attacked in the synagogues by the Jews, being arrested and beaten by the Romans, and God giving the early church wisdom and boldness to still remain and witness for him. They, they saw these things coming, and historians tell us they recognized the signs and they bailed. Here's the application for us, though, if we can stomach it, and that's that we as followers of Jesus need to swallow our pride and not die on the wrong hill. Because dying on the wrong hill ends up distorting our purpose and distorts Christ's true commission for the church. And there's a fine line for me between me asking you and I asking myself to look inward, there's a fine line between that and just poking the bear. And I'm not trying to poke the bear here. But let's be honest, the reason we're so bent out of shape when someone asks us to turn and look inward is because we start to find the hills we're willing to die on and we're bothered that someone else won't die with us. And for some, that's been mask mandates. People need to know where I stand on this. I was at lunch just recently uh, with someone and... When we walked in, it was before the mask mandate was lifted. It was about a week before. The, the young girl, just a teenager at the counter, said, I'm sorry, sir, I'm going to have to ask you to put a mask on. And my, my friend, I was shocked. I looked over, and he didn't have one on. And he said, no. And she said, excuse me? And she said, well, if I provide a mask for you, would you put it on? And he says, no, I'm not putting it on. And she's like, I'm sorry, I don't understand. He said, it's stupid. And then just stood there. Well, this is awkward. <laughs> I just want a sandwich. My friend was determined what was more important to him in that moment was for that girl to know where he stood on how stupid the whole thing was. And I feel like, for me, getting a sandwich in the local community I pastor a church in, the thing that matters most to me is not what you you know about how I feel about a mask. What matters more to me is what you know about how I feel about you and about Jesus loving you. And if me throwing a fit about a mask takes away my privilege and the honor I get to share Jesus with you, then I've died on a hill I never should have fought on. 
It's government overreach, it's vaccines, it's political ideology, it's party allegiance, it's how children discipline or not discipline, it's what schools do and do not teach, it's your opinion on the, the relevance of racism in our modern setting, whether it's relevant or not, and you've got such a strong opinion, and it's homeschool versus public school versus private school, it's worship styles and clothing trends, it's Coke or Pepsi, we can keep it light. It's okay to have strong opinions, even really deep, strongly held convictions. It becomes an issue, though, when we're either willing to die on these lesser hills or we're killing and ending relationships on top of them. We get one commission, and it's worth carrying out. It has an eternal impact. They had a hill here that they thought, in every way, shape, and form, this is worth dying for. Jesus says it's not. That's offensive, but there's a part of that, if I'll let the application hit me, offends me too. Our marching orders as followers of Jesus is to pick up our cross and follow him at any and all costs. And I'll die on a hill, but it'll be the right one. I just need to make sure I'm not dying on hills Jesus never asked me to die on. Okay, here's where we land the plane. If you want to close your Bible, you can. This is the other form of application that the story really clearly tells us. The story clearly tells us what Jesus predicting the end of the temple era, it tells us that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's really the point of this story, and that's where this is a very dramatic shift. This is a cataclysmic shift in the way that God has worked in the world. But the cataclysmic shift takes place in that he no longer will dwell in a temple made with hands. He will dwell not just amongst, but within his people. See, here's Here's my point in the way I wrap up this very strange history lesson that you did not sign up for. It's this. The story of the temple in the Bible does not culminate in it being destroyed. It culminates in it being multiplied. Think about that. It doesn't culminate in the temple being destroyed. It culminates in the temple being multiplied. You see, unlike ancient synagogues or ancient churches even, where we would consider those, we consider our church as the gathering place for the people of God, the temple was primarily considered the dwelling place for God himself. At the center of it was placed there the Ark of the Covenant, not an image of some deity, no, not at all, but God's glory and presence that would rest atop the mercy seat. Jewish tradition tells us this is the very place where heaven and earth collided. But don't miss this. Something really striking takes place as Jesus would breathe his last on a cross. Something massively dramatic takes place in that moment that's worthy of your consideration, it's that the veil in the temple that shielded humanity from the glory and presence of God, the separation that had to exist because of sin and shame, that only could a bridge could be made through it, if a sacrifice was being made, all of a sudden it was ripped in two from top to bottom. And when that happened, it, in, it obviously exemplified, it demonstrated, it showed something incredibly significant had just taken place it exposed what was hidden there. Either the Ark of the Covenant or a void, a vacancy of where it used to be. But it rendered, here's what it did, it rendered the temple itself essentially irrelevant because it indicated that God would no longer be separated from his people because God's spirit was bursting back out into creation. This is the biggest, most significant shift experientially between the Old Testament and New Testament followers of Jesus. It's that God is now united with his people by his spirit dwelling inside of them. And that is made possible because of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. 
You see, Jesus prophesying about this, about the temple's looming destruction, was making it clear that God knew about this and indicating even that God had allowed this. And as terrible and tragic as it was, the destruction of the temple, as much as a godless act as it may have seemed, God was using it for his purpose and everything would fall into his eternal plan to once again be united with and in his people. Now, I might have lost you a long time ago, but just rein in for a second. Hear that. For some of you, that's all you probably need to hear, hear is that this is still how God works, even the most tragic of situations on a massive or just a simple personal scale. God is still in the business of having those things work together for good and fall into place, not apart, but into place in his eternal plan even the tragedies that I face, even the unthinkable realities that we see play out. But why, oh why, would you allow it to be destroyed? Because you and I, as followers of Jesus, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. This is why Jesus said, it's to your advantage that I go away, because if I go away, I'll send the Holy Spirit. He will be with you, but he will be in you. He says he's, he's come to be a guide for you, to guide you into all truth. And he says that it's not just a, the presence of God being beside you, unhindered, but him dwelling inside of you to transform you is what Jesus promised. It's what the epistles say when it says, don't you know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit of God who's in you, whom you've received from God? Or Peter, he writes, he says, you are like living stones that are built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. My friends, we are mobile carriers as followers of Jesus, mobile carriers of the Spirit of God, a mobile temple unit who's allowing a broken world to engage with a gracious and loving God. Yes, through an imperfect channel, but to be loved in a way that's otherworldly. The reason this story matters so much is because it's the dawn of a new era. And it's the era that we live in. And if all of this is true, then it screams of the favor I have with God. It screams of the privilege I have of being connected to him in such a gracious way. For millennia, creation had longed to have unhindered connection with God again. But one man once a year, a high priest, would enter behind the veil to the sacred space where God dwelt with fear and trembling. But when that ripped apart and the Holy Spirit came out and my sin was paid for at a cross, my fellowship with God can today be unhindered through the wonderful sacrifice that Jesus has made. And my life can take on grand eternal purpose because of that. Because I house the Spirit of God and God continues to work through a body. The gospel don't just tell us what Jesus did and completed in his ministry. It tells us how Jesus began a ministry. The book of Acts tells you, and here's what Jesus continued to do and teach. But he did it through the lives of his people. My friends, God is at work in the earth and he's wanting to use you and me in the same way he used his son Jesus. You see, the story is so significant because it tells me that the temple story did not culminate in its destruction, but in its multiplication. That you and I have this amazing privilege to walk with God every day. That we have this amazing privilege to have God transform our lives as we yield to him. That we have this amazing privilege to allow the world to encounter the gracious love of God at work in our lives as we let them see Jesus. And so, Father, we thank you for this story, although it's a massive story with huge implications and lots of nerdy info. God, there's a personal application for each of us here.
For every person who longs to be united with God, who does not now go to a distant temple with a sacrifice in hand, because there was a sacrifice on a cross who had his hands and feet pierced. Jesus, we look your direction as the sacrifice to end all others, to remove sin and shame so that we no longer have to be separated. And Father, I pray for any person that's here right now who who right now feels the tension of wanting to be united with Creator, with you, God, but knows that their sin and shame has created a roadblock there. Jesus, I pray they'd look to you in this moment. Jesus, that they'd say to you that, Jesus, I need you, I need you. Jesus, I thank you that you'd suffer and die for me. Jesus, take my sin when you went to a cross and pay for it. Jesus, I thank you that that's what you did. So come into my life. Help me to have have a connection with you, my God. God, for, for those of us who follow Jesus, we thank you today for the reminder that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That you've breathed your life and breath in us. That we have access and favor with you in a moment's notice, that we don't travel back to a temple to pray to be near you. We sit quietly, even just in a quiet moment alone, and are heard by you. Jesus, thank you for the grace and favor that you've given to us, that you would pay the debt that you didn't owe so that we could receive the beautiful gift of life. You treated as an enemy so that we could be received as sons. Jesus, we thank you. All of creation thanks you. All of history longed for this. What a gift, Jesus, we have in you. Jesus, then use us. As people encounter us, may they encounter you. As they interact and enter our home, may they enter a sacred space of a temple, a place where they can feel safe and at rest a place where they can feel near to you, a place where they know that they're loved graciously. God, use us to represent you well. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.